Father God, thank you for this afternoon that we can come together as a church family, united by you, by what Christ has done in coming to earth to die on the cross for our sins, to redeem us, to rise from the grave, and to reign now and forevermore. And we ask, Lord, that as we consider our King Jesus, Lord, and we know that we we await eagerly his return, that our lives would be faithful above all. Lord, help us as we receive from your word to not just hear it, but to do it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you this afternoon. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. Uh, I would love a chance to meet you if I haven't met you in person yet. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Luke. We've been going through a series on the parables in Luke. We are finishing that up uh, now that we are getting to, well, summer is just about over. We finally had a cool week, which is nice, uh, but it's going to get hot again. So we're finishing up this summer series uh, with a final parable from the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. Um, and you can just keep your finger there when you get there. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced the phrase, use it or lose it? Have you ever experienced that in your life? For example, I'm sure that there are some of you who've had this situation happen. It happens to me every once in a while where you meet someone for the first time, maybe at church, and you're talking to them and they tell you their name, and about a minute into the conversation, you have no idea what their name is, right? You're just talking to them, you're like, oh, great to meet you, brother. Um, you totally forget it. And people who are good at this kind of stuff, salespeople and others who, who meet a lot of people in life, they tell you that the way for you to not have this happen to you is for you to use it, right? You got to say right away, well, great to meet you, Greg, or great to meet you, uh, whoever, right? You have to say their name so that you use it and you don't lose it. For me, uh, use it or lose it speaks to the idea that if you don't take advantage of certain things, and in particular, knowledge, if you don't make use of what you quote-unquote know, then you often end up losing it, maybe more quickly than you imagined. In my own life, I've seen this happen, particularly with the area of foreign languages. I don't know if you guys are like me, but um, perhaps you studied a foreign language. In seminary, we spend a couple years learning Greek and Hebrew, and we try to use it, right? We try to use it in... Um, studying the scriptures and, and reading the manuscripts and the text in the original languages. But the language that I've studied the most is actually not Greek or Hebrew, but Spanish. Um, I started studying Spanish when I was in sixth grade, so I was about 11, maybe 12 years old. And I, I did Spanish all the way until I was 17. And I actually did learn a surprising amount of vocabulary and grammar and all of that in school. I took a lot of tests, took the AP test, did all that. But then for the next 20 years... I never used it, almost not at all, almost not once. I never traveled or studied in Spain. I never tried to use Spanish here in the States. Even when I went to Mexico, I just spoke English. I didn't think about it at all once the homework and the tests were over. And so earlier this year, we had a missions trip to Costa Rica. Some of you were there with me, and I thought, man, this would be a great opportunity to try and use some Spanish and uh, try to listen to some Spanish, but when I went, it turns out that I had pretty much lost all of what I thought I had. I lost it, or really I never got it, because I didn't use it. Today's sermon, today's parable, is about this principle. See, these past months, we've been talking about all of these parables. We've been talking about the kingdom of God. 
We've been talking about all the things Jesus teaches us we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to live if we are citizens of God's kingdom. If we are children of God, what are our lives supposed to be like? We've talked about being faithful in prayer. We've talked about stewarding our money. We've talked about caring for those who are in need, loving our neighbor, being content and rich towards God. We've talked about trusting in Christ's righteousness, not our own. We've talked about the need to embrace humility and grace and to bear fruit in our lives. If you remember all these parables, we've talked about these truths of the kingdom of God. And yet, as we have said over and over again, parables can both enlighten us and harden us. And so today we come to this last parable we'll be covering. And in this parable, what we're going to see is that when it comes to all of these things that we've talked about, all of these things that Jesus has said about the kingdom of God and how God wants us to live, the truth is we can either use it or we will lose it. So let's get right into this parable, Luke 19, starting in verse 11. This is what the scriptures say. As I heard these things, He, that is Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. This is the final parable we're going to be going through in this series. It's a parable about the fact that one day Jesus will return. And he will judge the earth, and we can either use our lives for his sake or ultimately lose them. We're going to go through this text in three parts, as we often do. The mission, the return, and finally, the judgment. So we're going to start with point one, the mission, where we see in this parable the mission given to us while we wait. Beginning in verse 11, it sets the stage for what this story is referring to. You've got this nobleman who goes away on this long journey and his servants and his return in the conversation. But these things refer to spiritual truths. And I already said it, but namely, just to be clear, this parable is talking about the fact that Jesus would leave his disciples after the resurrection. He would ascend to heaven. We read about this in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. He would one day return. But he hasn't returned yet. 
The church has always agreed that this is what this parable refers to, and that's what the verse says. In verse 11, as I heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so that's so important, right? You're reading this verse. He tells you why Jesus told this parable because the disciples thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately. What are the things that they had heard in the beginning of this verse? Well, if you're a good Bible student, you're going to look back in your Bible, look back a chapter in Luke 18, you're going to see a bunch of things happening immediately prior to this. In Luke 18, there's a rich young man who comes to Jesus, a very famous story. And, and he asks Jesus what he needs to do. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And the disciples are kind of concerned by this. And Jesus says, nothing that you've given up will, will compare to all that you will receive in following me in this time and in the age to come. In Luke 18.31, Jesus says, we are going to Jerusalem. Okay, me and my disciples, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, he does say more about it, but they didn't quite hear it. And so at the end of Luke 18, there is a miracle that happens. There's this blind beggar, and the people are, are, are seeing Jesus come, and he heals this guy. He does this amazing thing, and they're pumped. They're just enthusiastic. They're, they're going crazy about it. And finally, he goes through Jericho. He saves Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Again, famous stories from your children's Bible. Zacchaeus gives away half of all that he has. He puts into practice what Jesus has been talking about. He gives it to the poor, and he becomes a disciple of Jesus. And so they're seeing all these things. You guys understand, they're seeing kind of all the stuff Jesus talked about coming into play, coming into reality. And Jesus has said, there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen, but there's going to be reward. And they're excited. The idea that was in their mind was that the culmination of whatever they had given up, the reward for whatever they had sacrificed to follow Jesus was just around the corner, just a few more miles to Jerusalem, and they would get there. So verse 11 says they supposed or presumed or assumed that as they followed Jesus to Jerusalem, the kingdom of God would appear immediately. That the rewards that they looked forward to were, were so close they could taste them. And so the parable in verse 12 begins by addressing this directly, and it starts with a bit of a buzzkill. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. What is Jesus saying? In case you thought it was going to happen immediately, which they did, sorry to tell you, but it's not. It is going to be soon, but it's not going to be right away. Right away, he says, a nobleman went into a far country, and the idea here is that it's a long journey. It's going to take a long time before he receives that kingdom and then returns to take full possession of it. You know, I was at a pastor's conference a few months ago, and a very famous pastor was on stage, and he was talking to us, trying to encourage us, and he was saying, you know, there's so many pastors who are discouraged by ministry. And one of the lies that you're going to hear in the ministry, but even in the world, is that the, 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 the followers of Jesus, they expected Jesus to come back right away. Because the truth is that even though that's how they naturally thought, Jesus corrected them. This parable tells us that. Right? If you go into a college campus, a, a secular place, they're going to tell you maybe Jesus was a failed apocalyptic preacher. Right, that he expected the kingdom of God to happen right away, but it just didn't happen in his lifetime. But no, Jesus said it would take a while. 
And this pastor was saying for us as, as pastors as well, we needed to understand that the church understood, the disciples understood, because Jesus taught that we were in this for the long haul. They understood that there would be some time before Jesus returns. And this reminds us of what Pastor Jesse spoke about a few weeks back. This parable was given to address the fact that for all of us who are Christians, we live in what we call the already, but not yet. You guys remember that? Jesus is already enthroned. He's already the king. He's already ascended. He's already resurrected. He's already in charge and victorious. And yet, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. Things are not yet visibly, physically present before us. As the theologian John Calvin once said, the manifestation of his reign is delayed until the last day. And so all of us, we live in this time. That's what this parable is getting at. We live in this time between Christ's first coming and his second, between the time he came and the time he will come again. And so look at verse 13. Read what this parable teaches. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And here we, we see the mission. That's what I call this first point. The mission, everything else so far has simply been context, but the mission is clear here. Before the nobleman left, he gave his servants a task and a charge. He said, engage in business until I come. And that's not just any business. That's his business, the master's business. But that's not all, because while the servants have been given a task, look at verse 14, the citizens of the country want nothing to do with it. It's this little detail which might seem out of place that is absolutely essential. Okay, so understand, because according to this parable, this is the mission for those of us who claim to follow Jesus. You are serving the king. You are called to go about his business, but you will do it in a world where the citizens don't want you to get that business done. You understand what what he's getting at? Let me say that again. According to Jesus' teaching here, if you are a Christian, your mission is to do the Lord's work in a world that does not want you to do it. See, there are two people under the nobleman's authority, two types of people. They're servants and they're citizens. And that's the way it is for us. We're going to live in this world and we're going to know that, that God wants us to do something. And yet, most of the world will oppose that work. And that's why it seems somewhat rare even in the church, to see someone who is living out the principles of the kingdom of God. You guys ever ever met someone like that? They seem kind of weird almost. They seem a bit strange, a bit out there, so radical. It's not because they're doing what the Bible says, but because they're doing it in a world where people don't like it. It seems so crazy to us. But if we're going to be faithful, we need to expect this. Now, this point um, will wrap up soon, but just to illustrate why it's so important that Jesus says this. I grew up in church, okay? I grew up in a Baptist church. I was part of the Christian community, um, but I really became a Christian in college. And the reason I say that is that it's only in college when I understood that I was a sinner. I understood why Jesus needed to die for my sins, and I understood why then I could actually love him in return. But in college, there was a lot of growth, right? A lot of deepening of faith. And one of the cool things was I saw that happen in some people's lives around me. Um, but there was this one girl who I knew since I was in junior high, and we ended up going to college together. And uh, she didn't come from a Christian home. She didn't grow up in church, but she began to be interested in Christian things. 
She began to go to like a Christian fellowship, started to attend church, began to listen to what people were saying. And she seemed to believe the gospel and, and listen with great interest. And I remember one time along this journey, she just kind of uh, couldn't help but express how excited she was about becoming a Christian. And this is what she said. She said, man, the Christian life is easy. You just live the way you were always meant to live for God. And I remember we had a conversation after that of a bunch of us. We were talking about what she said. And some friends said, you're right. It's just so freeing. Right? We just do what God made us to do. But others said, I'm not sure. Something seems off about that. And I remember some of the more seasoned believers had this wisdom to impart. They said, yeah, that's great that you're excited. But understand that the Christian life may be simple. But it's not easy. It's not easy. There are many people in the church like my friend, especially here in the DFW area, right? God is going to make your life easy if you just get on the right page with him. It should be smooth sailing from here. And if we think this way, we're not understanding what Jesus actually said. We're thinking like the world. With Jerusalem near, Jesus tells his disciples he is going to be gone for a while. And during that time, as they try to go about the Lord's work, it will be hard because the citizens of this world do not want the king to rule over them. Maybe you feel like my friend from college today, excited about God, just, just seeing all the positives. Maybe you faced hardship as a Christian, the hardship of following Christ, of opposition, of some suffering. Whatever the case is, remember the mission. It is simple, but it is not easy. And Jesus never said it would be. You see, if we are going to understand how to live out this Christian life while we wait for Christ to return, there is a tension we have to hold. You can know God. You can experience joy and peace, and you can have the fruit of the Spirit overflowing in your life. You can enjoy life and his creation and his blessings, but you cannot avoid hardship. There will be pain. There will be suffering. There will be the reality of a world that is fallen and people who are sinful, including us, and specifically people who want nothing to do with God ruling over them, especially if you seek to go about his business. And so, brothers and sisters, understand the mission to work for the Lord in a world that doesn't want it, to go about his business amongst people who don't want that business to take place. And with that mission in mind, we jump ahead in this return, in this parable to the return. Point two, the return. Read with me now verse 15. When he returned after this long journey, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Now understand, with these parables, Jesus is using the story to make a point. He is not yet explaining what the actual business of God is. Okay, that's not his focus right here. But his focus instead is on faithfulness and how faithfulness to the mission is rewarded when the master returns. And see, what Jesus wanted was for his disciples to understand that Jerusalem wasn't going to be just rainbows and butterflies. There were difficult times ahead. There was the cross ahead, but there would still be reward in the right time. 
That's what this parable helps address. If suffering is to be expected, what, when should we expect the reward? And this part of the story tells us. We need to recognize two things here. First, that the reward happens at the return of the master. And secondly, that the reward of the master is far greater than even his gifts. Let's look at this. Okay, first, the reward that Jesus focuses on is connected to his unexpected return. Jesus wants his disciples to hear this parable and focus on the future return of the master. Now, from other parables, okay, even what we read earlier today in our scripture reading, we know that Jesus often predicted that he would go away and return. And one of the things that he said that was so important to understand was that his return would be unexpected. It would be almost like a surprise. It would be something that you couldn't quite predict. Even though you knew it was going to happen, it would happen unexpectedly. Jesus says in many parables, then, the call is to be ready for this return to happen. And so the lesson here of this, this return of the master and the rewards given is that as Christians, we need to understand that, that as we seek rewards from God, we want the blessings of God The timing is not in our control. The timing is not in our power. It's going to happen in God's timing, most importantly, at that day when the master returns. And this helps us understand why the Bible often tells us that as Christians, we need to live in light of eternity. We need to live in light of the end. It means being ready for Jesus' return. Um, I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and my mind went to a country song. Okay, it's kind of funny. Um, I think that, you know, God is sovereign, and I think that I was destined to end up in the South. Um, I grew up in Southern California, right? suburban, Asian, American kid in Southern California. But for some reason, my older sister got really into country music. Um, when I was in junior high. So we started listening to the country station all the time. And when I was in high school, there was a country song that came out that was called Live Like You Were Dying. Anybody know this song? Tim McGraw. Okay, some people nodding their heads from the South. Um, in this song, he talks about this guy who uh, finds out that he's going to die because he has some sort of disease, right? Unspecified in the song. Terminal illness. And so they ask him, what did you do? And he goes on this um, chorus of saying what he did since he knew he was going to die, and this is what he does. He says, I went um, skydiving, I went rocky mountain climbing, and I went bull riding, okay? So he did all these exciting things, and I, I've thought about that a lot in my life, right? I've thought about this question, like, what would I do if I knew I was dying? And sometimes this comes up in conversation, right? If you knew you were going to die next week, what would you do? If you knew you were going to die in four months, what would you do? If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do? And the answers we give are kind of revealing. And what often happens, I remember talking with some friends about this, what often happens is you say something like this song. You say, well, if I knew I was going to die tomorrow, I would go, like, spend all my money on, like, the best food in the world. And I would go blow uh, my, my time on something fun. I would do the craziest things because I knew my time was short. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Okay, understand. His parables, his teaching, it has a different force. Jesus never says, act as if I'm coming back tomorrow. He never says that. What does he say? He says, live as if I could come back tomorrow. There is a world of difference. If you know you're going to die tomorrow, go ahead and spend all your money. Do this crazy adventure. But if it could happen tomorrow, 
what are you going to do? You're going to live so that when it happens, if it happens, you will not be ashamed. You would have been faithful. And this is why this parable is so important, okay? We talk about Jesus' return. We talk about how it could happen at any second. This parable tells us it was not meant to be immediate, but it is imminent, meaning it could happen at any time. And so the answer then to, to what we're supposed to do, it's not exertion. You guys understand? It's not just exert yourself until you get past the finish line tomorrow. The answer can only be faithfulness. Live each day, every moment, so that you will not have regretted what you did were your life to end in the next day. The Bible calls us to live faithfully knowing that the master could return at any moment. We live in light of that. What will he find us doing? And what will he have found that we have done? Are we thinking about the return of Christ? Um, Just in my own life, kind of a silly thing, but it helps. Um, you never drive around and, and you see the clouds and you see the sun coming through the clouds, right, in like rays. You guys know what I'm talking about? You sometimes see that, you, you see it like visibly. And for me, whenever I see that, I always think that could be Christ returning. Now, I don't know what it's going to look like. It'll probably be a lot brighter than that, right? But it reminds me, how have I lived today? How have I lived these past few weeks? When I see that, it's just a reminder. Man, Christ could come back at any time. Have I been faithful? As we read in our scripture reading, we must be ready for his return. But it's only those who are thinking about that return, living in light of that return, who will be ready. So we need to be focused on the return for our reward. But secondly, we need to understand that the rewards that are given at the end will far outweigh the gifts that we have in this world. Let me explain what I mean from this parable. If we're going to study this parable about minas, it would be helpful for us to know what a mina was, okay? Um, we're probably more familiar with this unit of money called a talent, which people talk about more. Uh, pastors are just more familiar with preaching the parable of the talents. Um, but a talent was like a huge sum of money, okay? A mina was not. So there's something different going on in this parable. A mina was about maybe um, three months of wages to someone in the ancient Near East, okay? Um, in this parable, in Luke, he talks about the minas, and, and we have to understand that each person in this parable is given one minus. They're given the same amount, which is not a huge sum. Okay, so maybe think about three, I mean, ten to twenty thousand dollar range for an average person today. It's nothing to sneeze at, but it's not like retirement money by any means. A minus is an amount that mattered, but it's not really much compared to a kingdom, right? It's not much compared to like your whole life. And so the fact that each servant is given just one minus helps us understand that in this parable, which is different from the parable of the talents in Matthew, is not giving the people money because he needs it. Okay, He doesn't need their minus. He's a rich guy. He's going to get a kingdom. He doesn't need them to make a couple extra thousand more for him. If you ever watch Shark Tank, it's kind of like how those billionaires, they get up there and they say, I don't think 5% of your $5 million company does it for me. I'm like, well, that would like change my life. But for them, it doesn't really matter. See, it's not about how much a mina is at all. The judgment in this parable is less about the minas themselves than about the faithfulness they reveal. See, what this parable shows us is that it's a test. What will these servants do with the mina? Will they do the master's work? 
We may be gifted differently, but in this parable, at least, everyone is given a mina to show us that we all have one life to live. And we must decide, as those who claim to be Christ's servants, whether we will use it for his business or something else. Every moment in this life for Christians is a test and an opportunity to ready ourselves for the kingdom to come. And what this parable shows us, as they, they, they show what they've made, they show what they've done, they show that they've been faithful, and they receive back ten cities, it shows that the reward is disproportionate. It's incredible. It's so much that they can't even imagine. It's, it's greater than they could have imagined. This is what Jesus wants us to understand. He says it many times in many places. There's nothing you will give up for the sake of the kingdom of God that will not be rewarded tenfold, a hundredfold, more than you could even imagine. And so as you consider the servants in this parable, we ought to notice that while they did make more money during the master's journey, the reward was not those minas they made, but what the master gave them at his return. They are far greater, the rewards of the master, than the riches and the sufferings that the servants endured while they waited. Look at verse 17. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. The faithfulness of the servants is met with this incredible reward. And this is not a detailed explanation, okay, of, of how like heaven is going to work. This is not telling us how each one of us is going to like own a city or something. It's a story, but it's meant to teach us a truth. Faithfulness now will lead to disproportionate joy later. And so as we are waiting, as we're living in the already but not yet, it gives us the motivation to be faithful, to continue, to work on the master's business. Does the amount that the servants make matter? Okay, that's a question people have. It seems like there's a correlation, right? One guy had 10 minus, he gets 10 cities. The other guy had 5 minus, he gets 5 cities. Um, there is a difference in reward here. But we should notice that the commendation is the same. The master is pleased with both of them. Even though they didn't have the same reward, he was pleased with their faithfulness. The truth is, faithfulness often does lead to fruit. It does lead to results in your life, but not always the ones you would expect. But it is faithfulness that God looks for first in his servants. You know, when we planted Zoe back in 2015, even before we launched the church officially in 2016, um, and we were with a small group of people just meeting, right? We try to say this over and over again. We said we need to make sure that we're praying, that we have a prayer meeting every week, that we're being faithful to God first, because even if we don't grow, even if we don't have success in the world's eyes, God will be pleased if we're faithful. But if we do this in our own strength, if we do this in our own power, if it is about us, then even if we are successful, quote-unquote, God might not be pleased with us. See, faithfulness is not simply about excitement. It's not simply about results. It's not about a mountaintop high or a single decision. It's living as if Christ could come back at any time, at any moment. And so the return reminds us to focus then on faithfulness. If you are faithful, you will be rewarded. 
It's a wonderful truth to know in the already and not yet. But the parable isn't over because while there are still faithful servants, there are also unfaithful ones. And the return is a time for reward, but also for judgment. And that leads us to point number three, the judgment. The judgment. There are ten servants in this parable, but there are only three who actually show up once they get into the narrative. Okay, There are only three that show up in the actual like um, follow-up of the story. There are two good and faithful servants, one who makes ten minus, one who makes five minus, but there's one more left to come in the parable, and he shows up in verse 20. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. Unfortunately, the third servant breaks the pattern of faithfulness. He did not engage in the master's business. Instead, he took the mina, and he says, I put it in a handkerchief, and I just hid it away until you came back. Now, we need to understand what's going on here. Obviously, the pattern changes for a reason. We need to understand what's wrong with what the servant did. Um, last night, I actually told this parable to my kids at the bedtime story. Okay, that's why you get when you're a pastor's kid. Um, you get these parables, and they're like, at the end, they're like, what? <laughs> what happened in this story? It's not what they were expecting. Um, and what my kids said was something that I think was very natural. They said, you know what? What that third servant did seems fine, right? Like, he kept the mina safe, and he gave it back. He just gave back what was given to him. What's wrong? Jesus knows that that's how we will naturally feel. The servant seems to have a point. It sounds defensible. He, he thinks to him that the master is someone who cares so much about profit, so much about earnings and stuff, that he's such a harsh master that he doesn't want to accidentally disappoint him. If he had spent the mina and failed to make a return, he might have angered the master in his mind. He claims that he didn't want to do anything that might have set the master off, and so he just gives him back what he gave him. It seems reasonable. He's just playing it safe. Why would Jesus set up someone like this as the villain? Have you thought about that? As you're reading this, you wonder, why did Jesus make this guy the bad guy? All he did was give him back what he was given. Well, here's the answer. It's because Jesus wants us to see that to try and play it safe with God, to not be about his business, no matter how good or reasonable your reasons, is the same as wickedness. That's what the master says in verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then, if you believe that, why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? See, what he's saying is if you were actually thinking about the master, you would have done something. You would have done anything for his gain and for his will. Let me give you an illustration just to bring it to our real life every day. Imagine you have a spouse or a child or a friend, whatever your station in life is, okay? And this person is very dear to you, and it's your birthday, okay? And you go through the day, and, and now it's um, 11.59 p.m., and it, the clock flips over to 12, and you realize that this person never said anything to you the whole day about your birthday. And so you ask him, you say, hey, hey what happened? I, I, I was expecting, I don't know, maybe something for my birthday. You don't want to be like, you know, selfish about it, but you're just wondering what happened. Are you okay? And they say, oh, hey, um, sorry, I, I was going to buy you a gift, um, but, you know, you're such a hard person to shop for that I just decided it was safer 
not to do it. What would you say? What would you feel? You would say, okay, I understand that, but if that were really what you thought, you would have at least given me a call. You would have at least given me a text. You would have done something. If you were actually thinking about me, you would have done something, anything at all. See, that's what the master, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He has all these reasons for why he was unfaithful, that he was afraid of the master, that he didn't want to, to do something to make the master angry. But if he had been thinking about the master, he would have done something, anything at all. Even if he had tried and failed, it would have been better. But instead of being about the master's business, what did he do? He took the talent and he put it out of sight and out of mind. And then what, did he sleep for a few years? No, he went about his own business. He went about his own business. We don't know exactly what he did, but none of it was for the master. And that is wickedness, Jesus says. This is something that must be said in the church, even before we talk to the world. I understand that we live in a world where it seems a very simple, unradical thing to go to church. But if you are a Christian, your commitment to Christ must be radical. Jesus says it over and over again. It is all or nothing. If you are a Christian, God must take first priority in your work, in your finances, in your time, in your schedule, in your relationships, in your conversations, in your activities, in your marriage, in your kids, your, your leisure time. You cannot hedge your bets with God. He is not an algorithm you can trick. He is not fire insurance from hell. He is not a genie that can be taken out and put away at your convenience. If these parables have taught us anything, it is that the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God. It's not your kingdom. It's not my kingdom. Playing it safe is not about the master. See, playing it safe is always about me. And so for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. You cannot play it safe with God. You cannot play it safe with God. The only safe choice is to be radically dedicated to him, to be about his business and not ours. And so that's how something that's so lofty and radical can become practical. And I speak again to the Christians here today. How should this look? What is non-negotiable? in your weekly schedule. It should be God. Who deserves your best effort and your first fruits? And the answer is God. Who deserves my obedience, my dedication, God and his word foremost? Who do I foster my love for? Who do I I fuel my faith in? It must be God. Or will ultimately end up being about me. There's an old tract called the four spiritual laws that they used to use. I think they maybe still use. But it had an image in it that I think was absolutely right. Okay, It was an image of a circle that represented your life. And, and in the middle of that circle was a throne. And what the track said was that for all of us, apart from God, we live as if we are on the throne. But what does it mean to become a Christian? It is to take yourself off that throne and to put Jesus Christ on it. The Bible tells us how this should play out. We ought to work As for the Lord, not for man, we ought to expend our lives for the sake of his mission, that more people might hear the good news of the gospel, be taught the truth of scripture. As a church, we ought to be a light shining on a hill. 
or a city on a hill, a light that's shining. We ought to be ambassadors for Christ. We ought to be a house of prayer. We ought to care for those in need. And even though it's a touchy subject, the Bible and parables are clear that we ought to use our resources and our riches to be rich towards God, to live in light of eternity. Um, about how we're planning in the future, the near future, to explain how we're going to have a, a campaign right, to, to try to build a more permanent or buy a more permanent church home. We want to put down roots here for a more permanent gospel witness and ministry of the word. But we need to tell you as pastors, it's not about fundraising. It's not about building our church. It ultimately should be about stewardship. When I was at our previous church, Trisha and I, we were young adults. We were, we were just in the working world. We didn't have kids yet. And we went through a similar process then. And the pastors, they were so good at shepherding us well. They reminded us that as we considered our finances, it wasn't about how much of my money I could give to God or to this church or to this program or to these people. It was really about how should I use God's money to be about his business. Look at verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Finally, we come to the principle I stated at the beginning of the sermon. Use it or lose it. The parables are meant to both reveal and to obscure, to explain and confuse. If they teach and they harden, then there's only one way to know which is happening in your life. Okay, There's only one way to know whether you are being moved towards God or pushed away from him, and that is to use it or lose it, to live it. This is what Jesus is getting at. Those who actually believe and live according to the truth will receive greater and greater understanding of the truth in their life. They will experience it. They will know it. They will believe it. They will trust it. They will one day receive a reward. But for those who shrink back, who do not do, who do not use the truth, but simply acknowledge it, examine it, they will have what little understanding, what little spiritual hunger they have, what blessings that they are temporarily theirs taken away. Now, some people read this parable and they ask the question, this servant, if we're talking about how these servants are like Christians and the masters like Jesus, is this servant like a real Christian? Can you be a real Christian and lose your salvation because you didn't do enough? Well, it's not a perfect corollary, but the answer to that is no. Christians will struggle with faithfulness at times. It's not about perfection. It's not being 100% faithful all day, all the time. It's impossible for us to do. But what this parable is saying is that those who never engage in the master's work simply reveal that they never believed that they were servants to begin with. Consequently, they never actually believed that Jesus was Lord. It's not about our works justifying us. Okay, It's not about our works making us righteous before God, but our faithfulness or our faithlessness will reveal who we are and what we are really about. You know, I know that in our culture, we often have this feeling that we, we just need a pull back. Right? We need to shrink back. We need to cut back. Nothing is more 2020s right, than the desire to stop having to do things. My news feed is full of stories. Yeah, I don't know why. Maybe it's because 
they, they know I'm into this myself, but my newsfeed is full of stories and, and, and like pieces about things like silent quitting, right? The great resignation, why people ghost out of relationships, how often Gen Z changes jobs, financial independence, retire early, right? These things are all on my newsfeed all the time. There's something about our world. We live in a culture of being burnt out and overwhelmed. And I get it. I feel it too, often. I feel the same at times, but this parable is a reality check. When it comes to the kingdom of God and the business of God, you cannot self-protect without self-destructing. I think about it sometimes. I think about how, you know, like God calls us to give more of ourselves to him and more of ourselves to others. And it seems so radical and so generous and maybe even impossible. And I just want to kind of close up, right? Put the walls up, build a bubble around me. But it's almost as if by closing ourselves off to what God would have us do, we make the bubble so impenetrable that we cut ourselves off from the very air that we need to live. We safely suffocate ourselves. And brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus is getting at. To the one who has, more will be given. To the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Use it or lose it, as our Lord once famously said elsewhere, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Look finally at verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Notice the judgment that they face. It's not pretty, it's not sugar-coated. Jesus says that the enemies, these citizens who did not want him to rule, are slaughtered. The punishment is death. Understand why he says this. To reject the Lord has always meant death. From the beginning of the Bible, if you are familiar with it, God said to Adam and Eve, from the day that you eat of this tree that I told you not to eat, you will surely die. And why is this? Is it because God is petty? No, it's because to put yourself on the throne, to put yourself on God's throne, is ultimately to reject life itself. You see, that's exactly what hell is. You know, we, we sometimes talk about hell at church. We try not to shy away from it, but it's a difficult doctrine. Right? I would imagine if I could just say, you know, you don't have to believe in hell to be a Christian, pews might fill up a little bit faster. Right? It would be a lot easier to get people in the door. You don't have to believe that people will be judged for their sins, that there is a punishment for rejecting God. But what is it about hell? What does the Bible actually tell us? Hell is separation from God. Separation from the source of life. Separation from the creator himself, the one who is light and every good thing. And this is why the Bible calls hell such things as utter darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? There's darkness and and there's pain and there's sadness because you are separated from the source of everything that's good. And this parable, it ends on a kind of disturbing note. Right? He brings them in and he slaughters them. The servant who was unfaithful and the citizens who do not want the Lord to reign over them both receive condemnation and judgment. But at the same time, the way that the master deals with the minas and with the servants and with the people shows us something profound about how God works. The servant who wished to have no part in the master's business has no part in the kingdom. The citizens who did not want the king to reign over them will be slaughtered because there is nowhere 
that this king does not reign. And the more I've thought about this idea, the more profound it seems. To use it or lose it teaches us something pretty amazing about hell. Every person who desires to reject the king will get exactly what they've always wanted. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever understood that? C.S. Lewis once said this in a poignant way. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the world in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Not because they choose punishment, but because they choose not God. So where does that leave us with the choice to make? The kingdom of God was not immediate, but it's still eminent for us. It can come in its fullness at any time. It will happen. And Pastor Jesse reminded us a few weeks ago that the reason that Christ has not yet returned is that God is patient, allowing time in his kindness for people to repent. If you're not a Christian here today, we invite you and encourage you to repent, to turn away from sin and even from yourself, and to turn in faith to Christ. While we were in Costa Rica earlier this year, there were a number of times I wished that I could have had a better grasp of the Spanish that I studied, right? There people would be talking to me, they want to talk to me as a pastor, and I just could not get anything, right? It was like they were speaking gibberish. It was so fast, right? You guys are talking so fast. And one of those times was in the middle of the week. One of the workers at the children's home we were at, uh, he asked to speak to me in private, um, but he doesn't speak English. So we got together, um, and because my Spanish was pretty much non-existent, Luis graciously helped to translate. Um, and I wasn't sure what this guy was going to say. Um, part of me thought, maybe he's going to ask me for money, right? Because that's normally what I think when people want to talk in private with me, that they're going to ask me for something um, that I don't want to give them. Um, but that's what I thought might have happened. But as we got to speaking... Here's basically the gist of what he told us. He had been working at this children's home for a few years now. It was a good job. right? And, And the economy is not good in Costa Rica, but this was a good job. He was able to make a decent living. He was able to serve the Lord. He was He was helping out these kids who were in the foster system, who didn't have families to go back to, who were abused and 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 emotionally distraught. He was doing the Lord's work, but he wanted me to pray for him. And what he told me, the reason why he wanted me to pray was, was kind of shocking. He said, I love this job. I've been doing all this work for the Lord, but I'm part of this church. And the pastor there has asked me if I could come on to be a pastor with him. And that sounded great. I said, well, that, that could be a great opportunity, but, but here was the rub, right? It would be an extremely low-paying job, right? He would give up the security that he had found in this job where he was serving the Lord in order to spend his time serving the Lord in a different way, but for less money, with less stability, with less blessing. He had received so much in his life that he did not deserve that he felt that he needed to use it. He needed to use it. And I was floored, right? This wasn't what I was expecting. And I prayed for him. But I left with a picture of someone who wanted more than anything to be faithful to his master, to use what he had been given for the master's work, even at cost to himself. And I was reminded of an old poem that I was taught when I was in college or that I first heard when I was in college, which has this line by missionary 
C.T. Studd, it says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so, church, let me remind you one last time that Christ will return. He has given us one life to live, and he has graciously provided us with the means and the privilege to be about his business. And so by God's grace, right, as a church, will we be faithful to this mission, not just with our finances or our time, but with all our lives. We have been given so much graciously by the Lord. As individuals, as a body, even in this sermon series, we've been given a lot. We can use it or we can lose it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this afternoon and we ask that your grace would overflow to the people here, to our church. It's very interesting to hear what Jesus has to say. It's very interesting to think about what it means to be a Christian. It's very interesting to examine the wisdom of Scripture. And yet, Lord, you're not interested in our mere interests, but our faithfulness. Lord, for those of us who are Christians, Lord, would you do a work in our lives and in our hearts to remind us, Lord, that you could return at any moment and we have been called to be about your business. And Lord, I pray for our church. Lord, I, 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 I pray for myself and I pray for the people in this congregation. I, I know them and I am encouraged by them constantly. And yet I also know, Lord, that we could be more faithful. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would work in us to remind us, Lord, that this time on earth, though it may be difficult, and though there may be trials and hardship, Lord, it is meant to be used for your purposes, for your kingdom, for your business. But help us to be more faithful. Help us to be more, more thoughtful about you. Help us to do things for your sake, Lord, knowing how we could be obedient to your word, knowing how we might bring you glory, how we might praise you in our own hearts, in our own lives, and in the people around us. We pray, Lord, that as a church, we would be servants, that we would not see ourselves as the master, but that we would do this all for Jesus. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.